Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. My name is Bill Rydell. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to be with you this morning and to hear, you, hear your voices lifted um, as we were able to sing together this morning already. Um, I do have one other thing that I wanted to highlight as far as announcements for today, and that is that um, if you're on CCB, you may have seen the announcement this week that we are um, excited to have extended an offer to, to Rich Rivera to join our staff team. Um, so if you've been around Redemption Hill, you may know something about Rich. Rich has been working a supported church planter in the Bronx, by, supported by Redemption Hill Church. He's a guy with over 20 years of ministry experience. We're excited for him and Francis to come and join our team here and their son, Ben. Um, and they're, they're going to be in town the weekend of December 5th. And so that same weekend as our members meeting, we'll have an opportunity for um, the members who want to get to know them a little bit to come in and get to know them sometime that weekend. We'll have more detail on that soon. And so you can find more detail on CCB for that. Um, let's pray and we'll jump right into what's in front of us. And Father, thank you for your kindness to us and your love for us that isn't contingent on how much we deserve it and how much we've earned it. Father, as we, as we open your word together this morning, we, we need some of our own prejudices and assumptions to be challenged, to be stretched outside of what we're comfortable with in understanding how you work and among whom you work. And so would you help us today? I pray that those who have come here that are feeling lost and alone and unseen that, that you would show today, that they would feel today the eyes of Jesus. Pray that you'd help us. Speak to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, we are in John chapter 4 today. If you have a Bible, you can open it up with me to John chapter 4 as we continue on our study in John. And as we come to this chapter today, there's, this is a well-known story that, um, that if you, you may have heard even if you didn't grow up in the church. If you have grown up in church, you may have heard this story. There's all kinds of ways this story gets taught. But this is a story of Jesus meeting a Samaritan woman at a well. And, and so that's the story we're going to cover. We're going to cover 42 verses today. Um, initially, we had this broken up into a few sermons, and as we studied it as a staff team together, we just came to a point of saying, you know what, this, there's too much that hangs together and is so good when we see the whole story together, and so we are going to cover the whole thing. And this story has a, has a whole bunch of different angles that we can look at it from that I hope it can speak to us today. Uh, my hope is that by the time we get out of here, that none of us will leave unscathed. <laughs> There's challenges for every one of us. And this gets to the root of some of our deepest issues, issues with, that we have in, in categorizing people and looking at people as the other. And so there's a question as we come into this, what, where do your prejudices lie? I know that we all like to think of ourselves as completely objective people who love everyone and have no prejudice, right? Until you see somebody wearing a certain thing or representing a certain view and you have like this visceral reaction of rage or sickness or like, we, we all have it within us. We're very good at creating categories that divide people up. This isn't new. This isn't novel. This is like it's, it's, it's amazing to me because there are things that have happened over the last year to five or so in our own country that, that feel unprecedented. We use that word so much that it, it's been an unprecedented use of the word unprecedented. <laughs> And, and still, and so we can still look around us though, and I think at times we can feel like we are in the greatest crisis of human history until you actually read human history. This is not new. This is the human condition. We are terrible to each other. 
And, and so today, as we continue our series in John, we are in a series of interactions that Jesus has with people that show, ultimately what they show is that everybody needs Jesus. And so we saw this as it began in John chapter 3, and Jesus interacted with Nicodemus, this religious leader, and who came to him at night, and they had a discussion that Nicodemus was stumped and couldn't understand, even though Jesus was pulling on Old Covenant Hebrew Bible imagery that Nicodemus was well aware of. And then we saw Jesus' interaction with John the Baptist, his cousin, and their disciples, and his disciples, and, and the jealousy that was rising up, and John's perspective that, that he must increase and I must decrease. And so today we see Jesus head across the tracks into Samaria, or across the river in DC terms. You can choose which river. <laughs> but what we see today, overall, what I want us to capture, and I hope we're able to see, is that Jesus is preparing a harvest that is not contingent on our comfort. I want you to hear that again. Jesus is preparing a harvest that is not contingent on our comfort. And so this is what we read in John chapter four. Now when Jesus had learned and when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of, that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give will, him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying you, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now, or that you now have, is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem, the, in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four months, yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eye and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. 
He told me all I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they said they came to him to stay. They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so this is a lot of, a long story. It's, it's a big section that I just read, that we just read together. But in this, what we're going to see, what I hope to be able to lead us through today is that there are five basic scenes that we see in this story. So we're gonna talk through the five scenes and then we're gonna talk through the characters we see and how that comes to us and what that, how we can see ourselves through some of those lenses. And so we're first gonna walk through the five scenes. So the, a story in five scenes today, the Jesus and the Samaritan woman first we have this, this reality of embracing the other. And so the first nine verses, this is what we see. Jesus comes into Samaria. It says that in the ESV, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, in some gospels, especially in Luke's gospel, that divine imperative of this is what must happen is something that's a repeated theme. And so we can lead into all kinds of, of divine appointment language here. And, and in fact, some have taught um, it's very popular to teach that Jews would usually not pass through Samaria. You've probably, if you've heard people teach on this, you may have heard that before, that they would go around on the east bank of the Jordan River, way out of their way, and take extra days on the journey. That, there may be something there, but Josephus gives plenty of evidence that the shorter route was, was preferred by people going from Jerusalem up to Galilee. But, and so this could just be a geographic thing, that Jesus had to go through Samaria in order to get home from Jerusalem. But there's also something here that we know there are divine appointments and that this happens all the time, that John is leading us into these discussions. And so who are the Samaritans? I think some history here is important because when we hear Samaritan, I think we usually think good Samaritan, right? We think of that story, that parable. Again, something that you don't, you don't even need to be a Christian or have a church background to know the phrase good Samaritan. Like there are good Samaritan laws that protect people that are first responders to tragedies and accidents. And so, so this is language that is part of our normal everyday life. And so I, because of that, I think when we think Samaritan, we actually think something good. And you might know that there's a history of division between the Jews and Samaritans. If you grew up in church, you might know those things. But, but I don't know that we capture fully and understand fully often the, the, the level of these divisions and how visceral this was for these people. So Samaria was, was a part of what happened in the northern kingdom of Israel. The Assyrians came in in 722 BC and conquered the northern kingdom and exiled Israelites into Assyria, but left some behind. <clears throat> later on in 522, so a couple hundred years later, Babylon came in and, and invaded Judah, the southern kingdom, and exiled people. But this is, the Samaritans were part of the northern kingdom. And though the Assyrians deported a lot of Israelites to captivity and exile, the rest of the people that remained in that place, the Assyrians intermarried with, and they had kids, and they maintained some form of the religion that the Israelites had. There was still a worship of Abraham's God, and there was a strict adherence to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, of the Hebrew Bible, but not the rest of it. And so they built a temple on Mount Gerizim in 400 BC that was destroyed in 200 BC, a couple hundred years before this story happened. But the perspective of between the Jewish people as they came back from exile, from Assyria and Babylon, um, particularly from Babylon, that there was, a, there was a jadedness from the Jewish people towards Samaritans. They looked at them as, as racially impure, as half-breeds, not quite Jewish, not quite Gentile. They looked at their religion as defiled and impure. And so you see that in what the woman says to Jesus, right? When she says like, hey, we worship on this mountain. You say we should only worship in Jerusalem. So which is it? And she tries to get into a theological debate with him about that issue. But, but and, and so that's when Jesus comes into Samaria, that's what we need to understand is that, that this was a deep divide. These were people that did hate each other. That's why Jesus telling the parable of a good Samaritan of a priest and a Levite passing by an injured traveler, but a Samaritan stopping to help would have been shocking to his Jewish listeners because these were people that were despised. Now again, this is where this comes to every one of us, and I'm gonna ask you to be honest with your own heart today about your own prejudices. Who is it that you despise? Like increasingly, that happens along political lines. 
that it's no longer that we can have debates or discussions with people who vote differently than we do. It's come to the point where we don't think we can stand and worship with them. And so our identity, if your identity becomes more based in politics than in Christ, as a Christian, you've got things upside down. It could be along racial lines. It could be along socioeconomic lines. It could be along international lines. There's all, way, all kinds of ways, again, that we can cut these things. But in this story, one of the things we need to see also is this flow and this progression of what John is bringing us through in understanding that the way that Jesus is interacting with people and the people that John, the evangelist, our gospel writer, chooses to highlight, particularly in contrast with Nicodemus. Don Carson said here that Nicodemus was learned and powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained. She was unschooled, without influence, despised, capable only of folk religion. He was a man, a Jew, a ruler. She was a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast. And both needed Jesus. And Jesus stopped to meet with her at Jacob's Well. Jacob's Well still exists to this day. And as far as sites in the ancient Near East, which if you ever have the chance to go to the ancient Near East, you'll realize that often there are several churches claiming, different, claiming the same site in various places. But as far as things can be told, it's as authentic a place as we can find in that, in that area. And so it's still there, it's still spring-fed, and it's a, a unique well because there's a cistern that's dug out, but a, but a live spring actually feeds that well. And so Jesus comes and he was worn out, we're told in the text. Which I love this because John has so emphasized Jesus' deity, right? That he begins his gospel in introducing us to who Jesus is. Remember, the whole point of the gospel is so that we might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And so John begins by saying, okay, the other gospel writers started at his birth or started at John the Baptist's ministry. Let's go back a little farther. In the beginning of all things, there was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. We read that the word became flesh and made his dwelling tabernacled among us. And so John has established firmly Jesus' deity. And so with that kind of introduction, knowing that Jesus is the one who gives light and life and sustains all life among all of creation, it's a little surprising now to get to John chapter 4 and, and read that Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. But we see Jesus' humanity, fully God and fully man, he got tired, he got worn out, and it was the middle of the day, around noon, the heat of the day, in an arid desert of a place. And so this woman came in the heat of the day. Women would typically travel in groups. There are some things that don't change in human history. <laughs> and so they would the women would come out in groups to draw water. They would usually do it in the morning, in the evening, not in the heat of the day. This woman, there are cues to us that she's alone. She's coming when she knows no one else will be there, and she's surprised when she walks up to see this Jewish man sitting at the well. Now, you might wonder, like, how did she know he was, he was a Jewish man? She, there would have been clothing cues and cultural cues. It's, it would have been obvious right away. The same way that for us, we know when certain people fit our prejudices. And her surprise makes sense. When she says to him, like, he, when a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples weren't there. They went into the city to, draw, to, to buy food. And she says to him, like, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Well, that she's surprised. And John tells us there that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Like, he tells us, like, this would have been completely out of character and context. It, even from a ritual cleanness perspective, usually Jewish people were very concerned about their ritual purity and their ability to stay and maintain ritual purity. And so the possibility of coming in, into contact with someone who was ritually impure and unclean would have made them unclean. But what she didn't realize is that Jesus is never made ritually unclean, but he sanctifies and purifies everything he touches. So Jesus shows us right off the top Right at the start of this story, one of the major themes that we see in scene one is Jesus' view and his push to embrace those who are the other. Scene two introduces an idea of living water. And so in verses 10 to 15, then, we have this interaction that, that Jesus, says, <laughs> she says, like, who are you? Why are you asking me for water? Aren't you a Jewish man? And do you see what Jesus has to say to her? 
that, that if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying this, you would have asked him for a drink and he would give you living water. And I think you see a little bit of, of the woman's defensiveness here. That She says, listen, you've got nothing to draw water with, sir. Like, what? There's a, you can read, I mean, it's hard to read tone, and we don't want to get into, like, psychoanalysis from 2,000 years away. But to me, when I read this, there's a little bit of defensiveness, kind of incredulous, like, what are you talking about? You've got nothing to draw water with. And where, where are you going to get that living water? Where does that come from? And you, are you better than Jacob, who dug this well, and it still provides water for us? He drank from it himself and all of his livestock, and you're going to give me something better than this? You can hear that in this. Now, Jesus' background, when he's talking about living water, it's, there's twofold. That living water was a way that springs were talked about because it was running water, which when you're talking about an arid, dry place is, it has, is much, much better than having something that's stagnant and sits there and stagnates in the heat. And so this is a well that had living water, running water into a cistern. And so that's, that's one implication, but that's not it. We know that Jesus speaks in layers when he talks to people. And so it, I think there's likely, in his mind, a callback to Jeremiah chapter 2, where we see God's perspective talking to his people. And he says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so here, God is talking about his own people who have left behind covenant faithfulness to him and gone to worship false gods. But do you see what he says? I'm the source of living water. I'm the source of, of life refreshing water, and instead my people have tried to build storage tanks in their idolatry and false religion, and it, they can't even hold water. It leaks out, and so they, they still stay dry and spiritually parched. I think that's what Jesus was calling on here, but, but just like Nicodemus in chapter 3, this woman can't grasp what Jesus is saying. She doesn't see the deeper layers of meaning that he's getting to. And, but she's not going to be taken by the stranger. Already, she comes in with a posture saying, of feeling a, a level of shame that we get cued into. That you can, She could assume that this Jewish man is going to look down on her. And, and so now he's talking some nonsense about, you should have asked me for water. Like, he's got nothing to draw with. But I think there's echoes, again, of Nicodemus. That Nicodemus was told by Jesus that he had to be born a, a, a new birth of water and spirit. And now you have this woman being told that Jesus has a source of life-giving water, and later on, that true worship is in spirit and truth. And so, with that, she, she's not getting the conversation. You can feel, I think Jesus could, in, the way I read this, Jesus could feel a little of defensiveness. And so Jesus changes the subject, right? So, I mean, she says, like, you know, if you came to me, you'd have this spring welling up to eternal life. Again, the imagery of this well that has a spring into a cistern, like, it's, there's imagery right there that he's drawing on. She says, all right, so give me this water so I won't be thirsty again. And that's when Jesus is like, okay, you're still thinking about water like you drink water. You're not understanding that I'm talking about something spiritual within you. Uh, so, hey, why don't you go call your husband? These are moments when I'm like, Jesus would have been kind of hard to hang out with. Right? Like, you see this later with the disciples, too? Like, they come back from the village, and they have food, and they're like, hey, we got you food. And he goes, he goes I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they're like, did he, <laughs> did he already, did somebody bring him? Some, what? Like, like, you just, and here, like, that, like, this woman is like, hey, I just, I just wanted to come here and get water. Like, I'm here in the middle of the day. I didn't really want to see anybody. You're getting a little personal. Like, I just came to draw water, and now Jesus zeroes in and exposes her deepest shame and insecurity. But the beauty is that Jesus doesn't just expose our shame and insecurity so that we can be further ashamed. He does it because it's only by bringing that darkness to light that we can ever be healed. And so that moves into this conversation where things change. All of a sudden, it goes from this kind of like metaphorical, theological conversation. It goes personal quick. 
And so she continues here, and, and this is where we get to scene three about spirit and truth. Jesus exposed the truth of her life. And she tried to skirt the conversation a little bit, right? She says, I don't, well, I don't have a husband. Jesus, Jesus isn't, isn't, isn't taken by that. He instead says, you're right. He doesn't shame her there. He says, you're right in saying that. That's a true statement. But you've had five. And the guy you're with now is not one of them. Now, there's all kinds of ways that this gets taken. There's, and we don't know. Again, we have to read between the lines a little bit. I think that too often, though, this gets taken as like, I've too often heard a perspective on this of furthering the woman's shamefulness by saying, this one was clearly promiscuous, she was drawing all these men into her net, and now Jesus was at risk, and that's why the disciples were shocked that he was with her. I just don't read it that way. Especially in this era, women were too often treated as property by men. I think this woman is, Jesus is exposing a lifetime of heartache and shame that she's been mistreated and now she's being used. And the thing about shame that's different than guilt is that guilt is when we feel bad for something we've done wrong. Shame is for when we have either done something less than human or been treated as less than human and other people know about it. it is a, there is a public knowledge of these things. I think Ed Welch, a counselor, said that. And so here, Jesus is exposing the things that the village that she lived in knew. And he says, so what you've said is true. But then the woman's response shows that that she says, all right, well, I can see that you're a prophet. And there's some discussion here. Did she mean a prophet or does she here identify the prophet, like a messianic expectation that even the Samaritans had of, of anointed, an anointed one that would come. But here I think she's just saying, you've just said something true about me. You shouldn't have known that. And so she does what we often do. She deflects to a theological debate that's one that she can rest in because we know this, right? It is always easier to debate theology than deal with our own shame. Some of you hide behind that veil constantly in your life. And so what does she do? She says, all right, well, you're right, uh, sir, I, you know, I can see that you're a prophet, so let's go about this. Let's go this direction. Get off of my life, sir. Uh, where are we supposed to worship? You know, our people say we worship here. Your people say that we worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus cuts through it again and says, listen, it's not about the place where you're going to worship. This is Jesus, God in the flesh, God tabernacled among us. We've seen this in John, that this language of tabernacle and temple, that Jesus is the fullness of God's presence standing in front of this woman saying, this does not matter anymore. God's presence is not confined to Mount Gerizim. God's presence is not confined to a temple in Jerusalem. God's presence in, is in his creation, no single place can hold that. It's what Paul says later on in Acts 17 when he was in Athens, when he said there, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so you see what Jesus says to this woman as he says, listen, you're getting into a debate that is going to become irrelevant very quickly. That, that, okay, you want to talk about the ethnic conflict between our people, then salvation comes from the Jews, but he doesn't here say that the Jews have it figured out. Remember, he just met with Nicodemus, who couldn't figure it out. He says, you worship what you don't know, we worship what we know, but listen, this is what's coming. The time is coming, and it's now here when true worshipers will worship the Father, so he introduces new language to her, that God is her Father, this woman who has experienced being abandoned by and shamed by a whole series of men is being told, God is your father who loves you and will care for you. And the time is now here when true worshipers, which implies that any other worship, other worship is false. You worship in spirit and truth because that's who the father is seeking. God is spirit and those who worship will worship in spirit and truth. So the woman says, well, I know that Messiah is coming, the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us everything. Jesus says, that's what's happening. <laughs> this is it. 
This is amazing because there's so many times in the Gospels when Jesus is among Jewish people that he tries to conceal his identity. And he says, like, hey, don't go and tell people. Now is not the time. Don't tell people yet. And he keep, that, that happens regularly. And here with the Samaritan woman, there, there's nothing held back. He's saying, this is it. This is who I am. And she believes. So we need to hear this because, we, again, here's an area where we tend to not listen to what Jesus says here. We tend to not listen to what Paul said in Acts 17. And we tend to approach God as if, God can, as if we can serve God and earn our way into his favor through that. We do approach God as one who can be served by human hands, who needs us to do things, who, who longs for us to do things because it's the only way that he can feel satisfied. It's a pagan view of who God is, that he needs our sacrifices. And even though we might not be offering animal sacrifices, we think that our sacrifices in our lives are what can earn us into his favor. And in that, we can tend to fall off on one or the other, spirit or truth, right? We don't, it's hard for us to combine the two. Now, I know some of you fall off on the side of, like, you're going to be a truth teller, you're going to cling to theology, but, but you know that there's nothing alive within you. You're doing what the woman did earlier, of saying, like, wow, that got uncomfortable, and so let's talk about this theological issue. Others of you want to experience the, the emotions and the warm fuzzies of a worship experience. But let's not talk about the stuff in the Bible that's uncomfortable. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's, the true worshipers are going to come in spirit and in truth. They're going to come to the Father. It's not based on place, but our hearts will be made alive as we come to him. Again, born of water and spirit. So then it moves into scene four. Scene four is the harvest. In verses 27 to 36, that the disciples came back, and they're like, wow, he's talking with a woman, but they didn't ask any questions. And so the woman left her water jar. She left everything and went running to the town to, to, and said to the people, come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And so they came out of the town and were coming to him. The disciples show up, and all the disciples can focus on is the task that was in front of them. They're like, well, we went and got food. So, Rabbi, it's time for you to, like, that, who was that? That was weird. They don't take time to even acknowledge what, that, Jesus was, that the woman was a person. They don't, they're not like, hey, what was happening? Hey, did you get to talk to her? What, what's her story? Like, Jesus, tell us about this first. And they're like, hey, we've got food. We brought this for you. Back to the, what I just said about God is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. And Jesus tells them, listen, there's, you guys talk about a harvest being far off, and here he's clearly talking a metaphor. He's using agricultural terms that they would have understood, but he's clearly talking a metaphor here saying, there is work being done and a harvest about to be gathered that you have done no work for. Open your eyes to the harvest fields. Now Jesus is clearly talking about the Samaritans, because right after this we see that a whole village turned in belief. But there's deeper layers to that, too, that, that what he's showing is, is his disciples show up again. They miss entirely what's happening. And Jesus says, all right, you've got to open your eyes. And, and he shows us that he's not, he is not you know, party to the social mores and norms of the day. Jesus blows up categories of racism and sexism as he engages with this woman. And then he promises to his disciples, I've already done some work here, and you're about to reap the benefits. There's a harvest that you haven't worked for, and so, and, and so here, we know this all the way through the New Testament, that, that in all of this, we can plant, we can water, but only God brings the growth, and it's Jesus' work that opened this door for them. It leads to the fifth and final scene that we're going to call, Can I Get a Witness? <laughs> Look at what happens here. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, I want you to notice something about the woman's testimony. The woman's testimony was not, I have found the Christ and let me argue all of the theological reasons that this is him. The woman's testimony was, this guy told me everything about myself. Could he be the Christ? And the whole town believed. But not only that, they came to Jesus, they came out to him, they invited Jesus to stay with them and then, as they interacted with Jesus for a couple of days, they believed not just because of the woman's uncertain testimony, but because they experienced Jesus' words. 
And we see this all the way through. Do you remember what Nic why Nicodemus came to Jesus? Because he says, nobody could do the signs you're doing in Jerusalem unless he was sent from God. We've talked about that John exposes throughout his gospel that, that a belief that is rooted only in the miraculous is not an actual faith in God. It's a fragile faith. It's too fragile a foundation because if our faith is only rooted in the miraculous things God does, then we are constantly asking God to reprove himself. We are constantly putting God to the test, saying, show me something more. That's what Nicodemus was doing. And here we see consistently that true faith, saving faith, comes in belief in his word. And so this is still the pattern we see today for many, many people, that people hear someone else's testimony and faith, and they'll come and check out this Jesus to see for themselves and, and then open their lives to Jesus. And we know in Revelation that he says, hey, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anybody opens up, I'll come in and eat with him and him with me. And so if you open up your life to Jesus, then he'll come in, and that's when you can encounter his word, and that's when saving faith takes root. And you are reborn of water and spirit, and you have this spring of water welling up to eternal life within you that, that is as God's spirit moves through you, that, but it begins with someone else's testimony. So these are the five scenes. And with the time we have left... I want to look at and trace a thread of four different characters through our story. Because I think in these characters, my hope is that at least in one of them, if not in multiple, you'll see something of yourself today. First, the woman. Well, in scene one, and just leave these up throughout. So in scene one, Jesus came to her, and in scene one, she comes in shame. She didn't want to be seen. She didn't want to be exposed. She was just trying to try to get water. I know that some of you have come here today in her shoes. You don't want to be seen. You don't want to be exposed. You feel uncomfortable right now because you're carrying such a heavy weight of shame that you're not sure that anybody would take time to look at you, to have compassion on you, to really see you especially not God. In your mind, he's got too many things to do. There's too many barriers to cross. So you feel isolated, you feel alone. You feel less than human. And so as you encounter God's word, you can often respond out of that shame the way that she did with some defensiveness and hurt and say like, hold on. Like, who do you think you are? But do you see that in scene three, even in the midst of the shame she is carrying and the defensiveness and the hurt that she shows, like she's got a reason to have an edge. She's got a reason to be jaded toward this interaction with this Jewish man. But even in the midst of that, in the third scene, we see that when Jesus does expose her shame, when he shows her shame, but then does not leave her and doesn't abuse her and doesn't manipulate her further, but steps in alongside her, that the result in verse 25, she says, listen, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ, and when he comes, he'll tell us everything. See, this woman, in the midst of everything she was fighting and facing, and even the outward prickliness that makes sense why she would be that way, that even in the midst of all of that, she was still clinging to a shred of hope. She had faith that God was better than what she had experienced in her life. She had an expectation that something could happen eventually where everything is made clear. And so when we get to the fourth scene, I love that her testimony comes with uncertainty. Like she doesn't go back to her village and say, this is it. I'm healed of everything. Everything is good now. She goes back, and she's so shocked that she says, come and see this man who told me all I ever did. Like she says, don't look at me, but, but he just told me everything. And so you, you should all come and see him. It's, it's a question. Maybe he's the Christ. If this is you, you need to know that the uncertainty you feel in sharing your story and life and testimony because of the pain that you have faced, that those are not limitations on God's ability to work through you. 
that you don't need to pretend to be something different than what you are, to pretend to be in a story that's at a different place than it is. And God can work through you even, even when you haven't figured out the answers yet. And by the end of this, in scene five, she's an evangelist. It's through this shamed, broken woman that an entire village is saved. God can work in our brokenness. Some of you need to hear that today. God's word is gonna expose some uncomfortable things in your heart. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It tells us that it divides soul and spirit. It exposes the desires of our hearts and it will expose things within us that get uncomfortable. But don't think you've gotta get it all figured out and cleaned up before you're usable or seen by God. Jesus sees you. For some of you today, I want you to see the crowd, the Samaritan village. They're absent through the first three scenes. They don't, I mean, kind of in scene one because it talks about Samaritans, but they're not there yet. Jesus has an interaction with the woman, and so they're not there in scene two or in scene three, but in scene four, all of a sudden, they show up. These people had no interaction with Jesus before this, and yet they hear something, and so they came to check things out. And they, they believed, again, why? Because of Jesus' words. For some of you today, you might be like the Samaritan crowd. You don't know what Christianity is really all about. You have some impressions of it. Maybe you've been treated horribly by Christians in your life, like these Samaritans had by Jewish people in their lives. Maybe you've, you've got reasons that you're clinging to of reasons that you don't want to check things out, but, but somehow you found yourself here today, maybe because a friend invited you. Well, I don't think that anything happens by accident. I don't think it's an accident that you're here today. I don't think it's an accident that you're hearing this story today. And so I want to invite you, listen to the people in your life that have some experience with Jesus, even if they're uncertain. They might not have all the theological answers, but they have faith that he's the Christ. He's the anointed one, the one that can help. Come and check it out like these Samaritans did. Invite Jesus to come and, and make himself known and real to you and actually spend time reading his word because he's the savior of the world. He's the hope that we have. And so for some of you, you might feel more like you're in the shoes of the woman. For some, you may be more in the shoes of the crowd. And then there's those of you who have been around church for a while. You may be more in the shoes of the disciples. Well, in scene one, what do the disciples do? Got to go get food. It's a real need. They have a real task. They have a focus they're going to do. They go into the village to get food. In scene two, the disciples are absent. Why? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Scene three, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Scene four, when Jesus is talking about the harvest, they come back, and again, they say, hey, Jesus, we brought you food. They have a focus. They have a task. They had needs that had to be met. They got those things done. They brought that to Jesus. They wanted to provide something for Jesus, and so they bring it to him, and he, when he says to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about, they, and again, they're like, uh, who brought you a snack? They still don't get it. Again, no attention paid to what Jesus was doing. No attention to the important ministry that was happening. Jesus had just had a conversation that lifted up a woman into the, the dignity and honor and glory of God's image and likeness in her and was about to save an entire village. And the disciples are like, we're hungry. He goes on to tell them this parable about, this parable language of this harvest and we have no interaction with the disciples in response to it. And then the next couple of days as the Samaritan village is all saved and come to know that Jesus is the savior of the world, where are the disciples? Well, the disciples have no dealings with Samaritans. This is the, my greatest fear in leading a church is that our church would get so consumed 
by the needs in front of us, by the things we are doing for Jesus, by the practical tasks of what we need to accomplish today, that we miss what God is doing in the lives of people as his spirit is bringing life. It's not bad. They didn't sin by going to the village to get food. But they did not have eyes to see how God was working in the lives of people they were prejudiced against seeing his work within. So guess what? Nicodemus needed Jesus. The disciples of John the Baptist needed Jesus. John said, I'm not the bridegroom, I'm just the best man here to celebrate. He needed Jesus. The woman needed Jesus to break through these barriers and bring her life and hope. The Samaritan village was outside. Jesus said, like, you you worship what you don't even know. They needed Jesus. And the disciples who were walking most closely with him on a day-in and day-out basis, they needed Jesus. They needed an encounter with the Christ. Jesus in the middle of this This is what we see from him in the five scenes. By the way, when I said maybe one of these characters you'll identify with, if not multiple, don't identify yourself as Jesus in this passage. (laughs) That's not how this works, and we do this all the time, right? Where we're like, I'm the compassionate one. No, you're hearing the wrong message. (laughs) In fact, if you feel that way, go back to what I just said about the disciples. (laughs) Look at what Jesus does. Now, this is what he calls us into, and how he meets every one of us. Jesus begins by seeking the other. Again, he's not bound by cultural norms and mores. He bursts through them. Later on in Ephesians 2, we read that that what he accomplishes in the cross breaks down dividing walls of hostilities between people that have been erected and set up so that we can find our safety and significance in our own tribalism along all the ways we can cut it. So Jesus shatters those things with the cross so that in him we have a new citizenship in his kingdom that reshapes everything we are and we're brought together, reconciled to God and reconciled as, a, as the new people of God from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. But Jesus here seeks the other And then he says, I'm the giver of life. If you knew who I was, you wouldn't be offering things for me. You would be asking me for this living water that can spring up within you and into eternal life. He says, I'm I'm the one who brought this for you, and we need to hear that today, that we, we we are living our lives looking into empty cisterns. We are living our lives trying to pump water into broken cisterns that leak out, which is why we always feel dry. Whether you do that through religious pursuit or through your job or through relationships, whatever it might be, we also fall into the same trap as what God talked to his people about in Jeremiah chapter 2. And so at some point, we need to see that Jesus is the only one who can bring us living water that will restore us and we will never thirst again. That he is the temple. That that our worship is not just confined to what we do here on Sundays, though this is important. What we do on Sundays, though, is really just an opportunity for us to step back for a day, to set aside some time so that we can together hear the voices of others that lift our hearts as we worship God to give us the fuel to make it through another week. So we come back together and do it again, but, but as we leave this place, we go as ascent people living lives that spill into worship because our lives are lived in the midst of the Spirit of God as we pursue the Spirit and truth. Jesus prepares a harvest, and he's the one that does all the work. Anything good that we get to enjoy in this life is a gift of God. And Lord willing, as we get to see people's lives change, that's not because of our greatness. We, we just get to bring our testimony of, of saying, this, this, this word, this gospel exposes everything about me. Could this be the Christ? And Jesus is the savior of the world. He's the hope that we have. And the thing that makes the church unique and distinctive and not just a nonprofit social club is that we have the hope of eternal life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so who are you today? What do you need to hear from God's word today? Again, it could be some combination. It could be that you've come in and like the woman, you feel unseen and unloved and outcast. You need to know that Jesus will meet you in your shame. He sees you and, and he's not gonna hide the truth, but he will expose your life so that in him you can find healing. But your story matters. Don't hold back from sharing with people about how Jesus is your help. He can use you today, even in your uncertainty. If you're the crowd, don't sleep on this passage. You can turn today and believe in Jesus, experience his word, and, and come to him as the savior of the world. There's hope for your life. If you're the, like the disciples, so focus on tasks that you're limiting your own opportunity to see Jesus and the work that he is doing, then you need to hear that the fields are white with harvest. He's already done the work, and the harvest is going to come whether you want to join him or not. But don't get so caught up in what you're doing for Jesus that you miss, miss what he can do through you. And for every one of us today, no matter who you are, like everybody that we've encountered in John's gospel so far, the common need we have is that we need Jesus. That, that he's the one who seeks the other and gives life and, and brings true worship and, and prepares the harvest. He is the savior of the world. So let's rest in that and drink deeply of living water. And let's pray. Father, I pray today that you would meet us where we are. For those who are struggling with shame, that you would bring healing and life and wholeness. For those who, are, who don't know you, that you would help them to, to turn in faith and repentance today and to be saved and be welcomed into your family. For those who have been running on a hamster wheel of religious activity, that you would give a freedom to drink deeply and to rest in your presence and a freedom to live in a way that isn't, isn't pumping our own water into an empty cistern, but finds refreshment in life. For every one of us, I pray that you, you would open our eyes today, that you expose something within our hearts that shows us who Jesus is, it turns us to trust him. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.